All right, so uh, before we get started, let's just uh, um, open in prayer and just invite God uh, into this into this place and his spirit would take control. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the opportunity to get together, to gather together as a family, as the church, and just to uh, just to learn more about you. Father, we thank you for your word and for revealing it to us that we would um, we would know uh, you better, we would know you more, and uh, we just thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity you give us this morning to uh, to study it, and uh, we look forward to what you teach us, what you're going to teach us this morning. Father, I ask that you would empty me of myself and fill me with you, that your word would be heard, and that uh, all of us who are here today would have ears to hear. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're, uh, this, this week we're back into the series that we started several weeks ago, uh, that Greg started several weeks ago on the Ten Words, Understanding and Obeying the Ten Commandments. So we've been rolling through Exodus chapter 20 and um, just seeking to better understand what it is that God has laid out for us as His commandments. And quite frankly, it's a, it's a neat way to look at it. If it it's, a, it's a picture of creation and how he has established the world. And so what we're going to see today is, an, is a little bit more of that. Um, so uh, before, before we get into this, though, I just have a, something to share with you that happened this morning. It's amazing how God provides these uh, just simple illustrations with, with my kids. <laughs> so you're going to get to have a, fun, uh, a little fun story this morning. Jess doesn't even know this. Uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't remember if I, uh, so I have two little girls, for those of you who don't know, uh, ages two and three, um, and our three-year-old today uh, was, was being kind of funny, but, uh, but Faith, our, our two-year-old, she was, uh, she had just, we had a, I had a candle lit, because um, I really like candles, I don't know why, I just, I, I do, and, uh, uh, they, well, they smell good, that's why, I, I think that's why I like them, but uh, anyway, I had a candle lit this morning while I was making pancakes for the girls for breakfast. And Faith decides to get up on the counter and blow it out. And Clea was like, oh, no. And then um, Faith went to go touch it. And I said, oh, Faith, don't touch that. You're not supposed to touch that. Don't, don't, don't touch that. And Faith was like, well, what can I touch? And then Kalia was like, well, you can touch this, and you can touch this chair, and look, you can touch the pancakes, and you can touch this, and you can do that, and you can touch this, just going all the way around the house about everything that she could touch. How true is that of us with our relationship with God? All we need to know is where the boundaries are. There's a whole lot we can do within those boundaries. And Kalia figured that out. So if a three-year-old can figure it out, come on. Okay. Um, so we're, we're studying this, and I'll be, I'll be honest, I, I don't even know why Greg uh, chose to go through this because for for pastors this is really difficult stuff to preach on the Ten Commandments it's really difficult stuff and not because it's something that we uh, uh, we don't want to tell people that there's sin in their life or that there's things like that that's not what I mean it's difficult because we deal with the same stuff it's hard for me to go through this because I see it in my life and I look at it and I go I'm unqualified to teach on this. Only Jesus should be teaching on this. Why am I up here doing that? And so guess what? You're going to get a lot of scripture today because it's not my words that need to be said. It's God's words. So get your Bibles ready, get your notes ready, and we're going to have some fun. Um, but, but honestly, though, when I, when I think through this, 
I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 about himself and how he feels about just this, this issue of sin and just how messed up we are and how messed up I am. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not know, or I'm sorry, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I share that with you this morning, to level with you, because I'm right there with you. This is hard. This is tough stuff. But it's in the Bible, and we have to unpack it. So today, we're going to uh, open up the seventh commandment that God gives us in Exodus chapter 20. And I invite you to stand with me in reading God's Word. This is our passage for this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a reason why I ask us to to stand. I mean, it's one, in honor of God, in honor of the Word, and what it is that He has given us. But it's a reminder that it's pretty clear. It's pretty simple, and yet it's something that we have a hard time with, and we struggle with, which is why it's laid out there for us. You shall not commit adultery. Apparently, this terminology that was used here was pretty well understood by the Israelites, because it required no further explanation. You shall not commit adultery. So, let me ask this. What does this command imply? You shall not commit adultery. What does this command imply? It implies marriage as a foundation. It implies marriage. Simply put, there's no such thing as adultery if there's no such thing as marriage. But we know, in our heart of hearts, that if there's no such thing as marriage, our world would be nothing short of absolute chaos. Why? Because our flesh and the devil has taken God's gift of sex and distorted it. Distorted into something almost unrecognizable from what was intended. A beautiful gift to humankind. In fact, there are three incredible gifts. I will argue that there are three incredible gifts that God has given us. Now, there are a lot of gifts that God has given us. A lot. Let me hone in on three for you this morning. And these gifts that God has given us, our flesh and the devil have twisted and ruined. Life 
marriage and sex. Kevin DeYoung put it this way, no relationship can be as intimate, sweet, life-giving, and joy-filled as marriage. And no experience can be as intimate and powerful within that marriage relationship as sex. And neither one of those things are possible without the gift of life. Now, if you're single today, don't tune me out. I promise there's still application here. But it's no wonder then that confusion and perversion and pain surround these. Not because they're bad or not worth the trouble. It's because they're such good gifts from God. Of course the devil would attack these gifts. It's something he's been doing since the beginning of time. So to break down this command of do not commit adultery, we need to first define marriage. We need to define marriage. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to talk about creation ordained, the definition of marriage. The definition of marriage. Now, I want to be clear. This is the, the definition of marriage. Some people will say this is a biblical understanding of marriage. Okay? But let me tell you, I'm going to be very clear. The biblical, the biblical definition of marriage is the definition of marriage. I can't make it any more clear. If God is creator, we're going to see how we set it up. Do you believe that God is creator today? He defined it. The state does not define it. We do not define it. God defined it. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what we see here in this creation that God has established is complementarity. Complementarity. God created everything. And after he was done, he said, this is good. But there was one thing that wasn't good. And that was that man was alone. Which is why a woman was created. So that the two would become one. 
That's how it was designed. So that the two would become one. And reveal God's glory through that relationship. That was the way he created it. That's the way he ordained it. And that's the way he ordained marriage. was between a man and a wife. Not just a monogamous relationship with two people. I mean, at that point, why does it have to be just two people? God defined it as a man and a woman. Brought together to complement each other. To be companions. To be partners. And there's more. There's a responsibility within that marriage. We see in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the, the word records, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the, and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless faithless to the wife of your youth. And then Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see marriage is the place where children come. Now I'm not saying that that's if you're if you're if you don't do that, that is you're not fulfilling what God requires, but I am saying that is the location for where it happens. For children to come and offspring to be born is through the marriage. And the way he set it up, there's no other way for that to happen unless it's a man and a woman. Again, it's back to God's definition. And then finally, in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to show you that a marriage is a reflection of the gospel. A marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying 
that it refers to Christ and the church. So here Paul lays out that the marriage relationship is a picture or a reflection of the gospel for the world. It's a reflection of the gospel for the world. To see the relationship the proper way a relationship should be between a man and a woman and that marriage is a presentation of the gospel in our relationship of us as the church with Christ. And we even see, as we're going to actually show you here in a little bit, we see throughout Scripture, God has weaved in this concept of marriage throughout the entire revelation of Scripture. And because of that, and what I mean by that is a marriage, is a marriage of, between us and Him, and our relationship with Him. Because of that, we also see weaved throughout Scripture this concept of adultery. Because many times Israel would turn away from God. And God would view that as adultery. Spiritual adultery. So it's interesting how those two aspects are weaved together throughout Scripture. So we've defined marriage. Now we need to get into the scope of adultery. The scope of adultery. And this is where creation has been distorted. This is where creation has been distorted. So we talked earlier, we, we mentioned uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And that's where we begin, is you shall not commit adultery. Descent, I mean, this is basically unfaithfulness. Right? This is, we know that is what that means, unfaithfulness. And this was clearly understood by the Israelites. Like I mentioned earlier, it didn't need any further explanation. Adultery is being unfaithful to your spouse. Now, in, uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I invite you to turn with me, actually, to that passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 8. You see Paul build upon this. Okay, many times, there are a few things in Scripture where Jesus and Paul and their teaching take some Old Testament things and say, okay, well, this is what it looks like now under the New Covenant. But in this case, we see Paul build upon it and extend it. Doesn't remove it. He, he continues the conversation. Okay, So we're going to see Paul talking with Timothy, or, or writing to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 8. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There's two, two phrases here that I want us to key in on. And I want to show you that what Paul is doing here, and he's, he's, as he's walking through this passage for Timothy, he's walking through the second table of the law. The last five commandments that God gave out in Exodus chapter 20. Okay, so we see uh, starting in verse, uh, later on in verse 9, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, you see that as a reflection of the commandment 
to honor your father and mother. For murderers, that's pretty clear. You should not commit murder. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, there's the commandment that we're studying today, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So we see Paul is laying out the, ten, or the last five of the Ten Commandments here. And so the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality is what Paul talks about with reference to committing adultery. That's the context. So the word here for sexually immoral or sexual immorality is a word, the Greek word is actually pornois. I think I'm pronouncing that right, pornois or pornoi, which comes from the Greek word pornea. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That's where we get the word pornography. Sexual immorality. This is a word that Jesus also used in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when he was listing evil things that come from within a person and defile that person. Pornea can be found in Greek literature with references to a variety of illicit practices, illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice outside of marriage between a man and a woman that is prohibited by God's law. So it's a pretty all-encompassing word. And those reading it would have fully understood the depth and the breadth of that word that Paul was using. And we see it translated as sexual immorality. Again, within the context of the commandments that he's laying out for Timothy, you should not commit adultery. And then there's another word that Paul uses, which we get the phrase translated, men who practice homosexuality. The word that Paul uses here is actually a word that he coined by combining two Greek words in an echo of what the Greek translation of the Hebrew states in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22 and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 reads, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Paul also uses this word that he coined in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's rebuking and teaching the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had a problem with sexual immorality. And he's correcting them and rebuking them for that. In fact, Paul has a great deal to say about this, this sexual immorality in the church in Corinth in chapters 5 and chapter 6. And I want to turn with uh, you this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to show you what he says about this, where this term is used, and also what it means for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And he goes on to say, and he's quoting a phrase that was commonly uh, quoted around this church in Corinth, apparently. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There Paul is speak, uh, teaching believers in the church in Corinth. He's speaking and teaching to believers in the church in Corinth. And we see that this command reveals to us something that's a little bit more personal than just impacting people. Because it is impacting people, but it's also affecting yourself. He says, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, so the scope of adultery, we've covered unfaithfulness, which we found in Exodus chapter 20. And then Paul extends this and discusses sexual immorality, which we found in the words that I've mentioned here in 1 Timothy and then 1 Corinthians, the next thing we're going to see is Jesus and what he has to say about this command. So turn with me to Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter 5. This is where Jesus is preaching on the sermon on the, of the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, chapter 5. Starting with verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus uses a word here that's translated to lustful intent. He says, do not, or he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a pretty bold statement. Let me remind you of who's talking here. It's God. 
The Greek word that Jesus uses here for lustful intent means to desire, to covet, or to long for. This doesn't mean that you can't look at someone and say, wow, that person's beautiful. Because guess what? God created him or her. Yes, you're right. They are beautiful. This is talking about something different, and you know what I'm talking about. Lustful intent means to desire, to covet, or to long for. Now, I would be remiss to stop here in verse 30, because Jesus continues what he has to say about this command. So we've talked about, we've talked about um, unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, which is a large coverage of practices. And we, Jesus mentioned lustful intent. Now we're going to see him also use this with regard to illegitimate divorce. Starting with verse 31, right after he talks about lustful intent. He says, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a tough one to swallow. The grounds for divorce, according to the Bible, the grounds for divorce, and even according to what Jesus is saying here, we see this throughout the Old Testament in Exodus and Deuteronomy, is unfaithfulness or infidelity, adultery, we've been talking about it all morning, abandonment, and Jesus brings on sexual immorality. For any other reason, Jesus is making the point that he, being God, has the right to view that divorce as illegitimate. And he can even view it as adultery. Except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now let me be very clear here. Every relationship is unique. I get that. Okay? But this is what Jesus is telling us. And so what I suggest is in this case, my advice concerning this is that we be diligent in any consideration for divorce. Be extremely diligent. Do not take it lightly. Because if it's not done the way that it's set up in Scripture, God can view it as illegitimate and as adultery. And who's to, who's to tell him he's wrong? So, Why is this such a big deal to God? Why is disobedience to the command, you shall not commit adultery, such a big deal to God? Sounds kind of archaic, doesn't it? Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, guess what? It is. Because it's the thing, it's the very first thing that God set up for humankind. Marriage. And what it does in disobeying this command, it flies directly in the face of and is a direct disregard for the created order. We might as well be telling God, God, you didn't know what you were doing in creating us this way. I know better. 
and I'm going to do things my way. Don't you want to have, don't you want me to have what I want? Who does that sound like? If you read Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14, you can see pretty clearly who that sounds like. Now, God has an answer for this mindset. He has an answer for it. It's Romans chapter 1. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And I just want to read with you quickly the answer God has for this in this mindset. It's pretty clear. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And I'm not going to read all of it. I encourage you to read it on your own time, this passage. But I'm going to point out some key things here within this passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul records, listen very carefully, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. It's pretty clear that God made men and women. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So goes on to talk about how they created idols and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so what does God do? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we see here the first instance of God's wrath and God turning them over to their lusts. Gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Now verse 26, So for this reason, because they serve the creature rather than the creator, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, or that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationship with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men with men, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their sin, for their error. And it goes on in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what we see is in that mindset, With the mindset of, well, God, don't you want me to have what I want? If it's not biblical, he'll turn you over to it. And that's his wrath. That's what we see here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. 
But it doesn't stop there. He says, guess what? We have hope. We have hope. God's going to restore creation. We've talked about creation ordained. We've talked about creation distorted. God's going to restore creation. And we see that in the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think this is so cool. Throughout Scripture, we see God using the picture of marriage as a way for us to relate to Him. We, our relationship with Him is reflected in marriage. We talked about how marriage is a reflection of the Gospel. And even throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is accused of committing spiritual adultery with God. Turning away from Him and lusting after other idols. Lusting after things that aren't even real. And yet we see what He's going to do for those of us who have come to know Him and put our trust and faith in Him. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 20, this is what the Lord says. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they will be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And then in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, we read, Then I heard, this is John recording in Revelation, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus foreshadows the day of the Lord, the day when He will return. And the picture that He gives us is that of a bridegroom coming back to claim what's His, His bride, the church. To me, that is, it is just so incredible. And then in this passage, in Revelation chapter 19, there will be a feast, a wedding, one of the most beautiful ceremonies that can happen in this world. We will get to experience that on the, after the day of the Lord, the wedding feast that will be there. But how is this possible? We just talked about how messed up we are. How is this possible? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, this is speaking of Jesus, this is Paul, for our sake, he made him 
to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to this earth, did not commit a single sin, but yet died. Now we know the wages of sin is death, but Jesus didn't sin. He took on our sin, and he paid the penalty that we deserve on the cross. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what do we do? 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what I encourage you and what I'm encouraging myself, as I've been convicted as well, is to repent, to turn to him, let him cleanse you, because we can't clean ourselves. God does that. Let him cleanse you, and then let him claim you as his. Let him claim you as his. I want to close with a prayer from Psalm chapter 130. This is verses 1 through 4. And this might be something that we can even pray today. In closing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word this morning as you revealed it to us. You've made it very plain that none of us escape failing at this commandment. We are all guilty. Father, you gave us hope in your Son. You had the absolute right when Israel turned away from you to just destroy her, to destroy us. But yet, you sent your Son to be destroyed. We thank you for that wonderful mercy and love that you showed us on the cross. And we look forward to the day where we will get to be with you in eternity and get to experience that wonderful wedding feast that will come. Our sins will be remembered no more and we will live with you in eternity in no sin but with you. We look forward to that day. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.